We are in week two of a series called Songs of the Savior. And so Tom alluded to it earlier this morning. And in this series, we begin each sermon with a Christmas hymn or a carol. And we take a look at the theological truths that are embedded in, that, in those songs, those carols, those hymns. And then we also are taking a look at the biblical story that each of them is rooted in. So last week, we looked at the song Silent Night, and we investigated its source, Luke chapter 2, where we read of God announcing the birth of his son through a host of angels to a ragtag group of shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Today, we'll be starting with the song We Three Kings. It was written in 1857 by a man named John Henry Hopkins, who initially wrote the song for his nieces and nephews' Christmas pageant, like we had this morning. Hopkins served as the rector of Christ Episcopal Church in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Originally, he worked as a journalist for a New York newspaper and studied to become a lawyer, but after graduating, instead of going to, into either of those fields, he decided to go into ministry where the money is. Just kidding. His other claim to fame is that he delivered the eulogy at the funeral of Ulysses S. Grant. So this song is uh, written by John Henry Hopkins. Now, before we jump into We Three Kings, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for letting your spirit, allowing your spirit, providing your spirit to be here with us, guiding us, directing us. Uh, Father, I pray that through your spirit today, we would take our eyes and our minds and our hearts and we might focus them all upon you and upon your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. So We Three Kings is a really familiar and wonderful Christmas carol. It is not perfect, but it's really, really good. It does a great job of drawing out several essential truths from the story of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to take a few moments now, and I'm going to read the story of the wise men, stopping along the way to identify several key characters, and then ending by taking a look at the ways that each of these characters responded to the birth of of the Messiah, and of course, how we should respond as well. So let's jump in, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come 
to worship him. And so the wise men or the magi, as they are often referred to, were from Persia or modern-day Iran. Despite the lyrics of We Three Kings, they weren't actually kings. Uh, Although they were among the cultural elite in their society, and there weren't three of them, uh, at least the narrative doesn't specify. What the narrative tells us is there were three gifts, and so we often assume that maybe there were three of them. Instead, who they were was educated priests who would have been astrologers or astronomers in the Persian kingdom. We might understand them best when we think about when Daniel was captured and went into Babylon and he served with, quote, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. That's who these men were. These were the people that Nebuchadnezzar summoned to interpret his troubling dreams. Clearly, the Magi had seen some form of astrological anomaly. We know that Halley's Comet made an appearance around 11 BC, maybe. And in 7 BC, Jupiter and Saturn formed a brilliant conjunction in the night sky, could be. We know that between 5 and 2 BC, Sirius, known as the Dog Star, rose in an unprecedented brilliance. Another option was that an angel appeared in the sky and led the Magi to the birthplace of Jesus. We don't know exactly what heavenly light the Magi saw, but clearly they saw a celestial anomaly in the heavens that communicated to them the birth of a king. It's likely that the wise men were familiar with Daniel's prediction of three successive kingdoms to be followed by a final kingdom led by a final king. And they may have been familiar with the Jewish prophetic literature, specifically Numbers 24, 17. We have it up here on the screen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break all the sons of Sheth. Or they may have been familiar with Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Either way, the Magi would have been wealthy, educated, and powerful Gentiles who embarked on a two-year-long journey to find the promised king. That's who these men were. Now let's jump back into verse 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now the chief priests and the scribes are the second group of people we're going to look at today. They were essentially the religious and political elite of the Jewish nation. Chief priests were members of the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court, The scribes were experts in Old Testament liturgy. They studied and wrote commentaries on it. They may have been somewhat analogous to theology professors like our very own John Huggins, John Parker, and Dean Ulrich, who are in our midst. It would have been logical for Herod to invite both of these groups to inquire about the Messiah. Their response to his question about where the Messiah was to be born was correct, as they quoted from Micah 5, that this king was to come from Bethlehem, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So we've taken a look briefly at the wise men. 
We've taken a brief look at the chief priests and the scribes. Now for a moment, let's look at Herod. The Herod in this story is Herod the Great. He ruled Judea from 37 BC to 4 BC. He did some really great things. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. He built the fortress Masada. He also established Caesarea Maritime, a man-made port and an engineering marvel that allowed Judea to have an economic presence in the ancient Near East that would have otherwise eluded it. So Herod the Great did some truly great things. He also did some not-so-great things. Mostly, he was a paranoid tyrant. History records Herod as insanely suspicious. Anyone that was a rival was eliminated. He had his wife and her mother assassinated. He had his three oldest sons assassinated because he feared that they might attempt to take his throne. He drowned a high priest. He murdered several uncles and cousins and even masterminded a plot to kill a stadium full of Jewish leaders. And after the wise men left, Herod had every boy under two years of age in Bethlehem murdered. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, is quoted as having said, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Clearly, Herod stands out as the villain in this narrative. More on him in just a moment. Back to verse 9. After listening to the king, they, that is the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the question is, what do we take away from this passage? How should we read it? As always, there's more to this passage that we can possibly cover, so I'm just going to focus on one thing today, and that is how people respond to the Messiah. There are three responses, really, that we see in this passage, three responses to the coming king. The first response we see is hostility. Look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to jump out of the text and look a little bit further out in the story, verses 13 through 16. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14, and he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, Clearly, Herod was hostile to Jesus, to the Messiah. In this case, Herod happened to have the power to try to do something about this threat to his throne. And so in response to the news that he gathered gathered from the Magi, Herod had all the boys under two years of age in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area killed, an event known in history as the Massacre of the Innocents. The reason that people often feel hostile to Jesus is that he threatens our personal monarchies. Jesus is actually a legitimate threat to our Lilliputian kingdoms. When the wise men showed up, they asked Herod, where is he who has been born king 
of the Jews. In other words, where's the real king? Where's the true king? Immediately Herod knew that he had a rival on his hands, and so do we. N.T. Wright, in his book, Who Was Jesus?, says this. He says, at the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man that he kills a whole village full of other babies. At the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who, if only the Roman emperor knew it, would be lord of the whole world. Whatever else you say about Jesus from his birth onwards, people certainly found him a threat. He upset their power games and suffered the usual fate of people who do that. Let me just say this really quickly. Just because we're in church today doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to us. Don't forget that it was ultimately the religious people who had Jesus killed. Some of you are in a battle with Jesus for control of your life, for control of your kingdom, your sexuality, your money, your time, your priorities. It's my prayer that Jesus would win that battle for your heart and that he would set you free, that you might bow the knee to his son. Now, the second response we see to the Messiah is indifference, distraction almost. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The reaction of the religious leaders, that is the chief priests and the scribes, has probably ceased to shock us, either because we know this story so well or we don't really understand their culture, and that's really a shame. My guess is that to Matthew's original readers, this verse would have been surprising to say the least. How is it that the religious leaders, the pastors and the theology professors, how is it that they showed up, gave their answer to Herod, and then went back to their homes, back to their offices, back to their daily routines? Why didn't they go with the Magi to find the Messiah? The text doesn't tell us. But what we can see is that they appeared largely unmoved, indifferent to the arrival of these Gentile astrologers. Maybe that was actually the problem. Maybe they thought that there was no way that Gentiles, pagans, could herald the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. Maybe they thought there was no way that God would have announced the birth of his son to shepherds either. Many of us are indifferent to Jesus. We are moved by our favorite podcast host, or our favorite blogger, or perhaps we're moved by a certain politician from our particular camp, but we're unmoved by the word who came and dwelled among us. I have to admit that I often fall into this trap myself. I love psychology and philosophy, and it's really easy for me to eat a steady diet of thinkers in those particular fields of academia. The other day, it struck me, however, that in a hundred years, people won't even remember Oprah, right? No recollection. They won't remember Dr. Phil. In a hundred years, people won't remember Jordan Peterson or Jen Hatmaker. In a hundred years, Elizabeth Warren, Greta Thunberg, Megan Rapino, Bill O'Reilly, and Ben Shapiro will be nothing but tiny, tiny footnotes in human history. Jesus, however, will still be on the move, awakening people and leading them into lives where they become fully human. So people respond to the Messiah with indifference. They respond with hostility. But some people respond to the presence of the Messiah with worship. 
Let's look at verses 9 through 11. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There is one thing that great stories, great films, great artists, and even great comedians have in common, and that is that they are masters of the twist or the surprise ending or the punchline. Last week in Luke chapter 2, we saw God, God, the master storyteller at work when he sent the angels to announce the birth of his son to shepherds, social outcasts who lived in the fields near Bethlehem. Nobody, and I mean nobody, saw that coming. And this morning, we read again another story with an unexpected turn. God sends a star to commemorate the birth of his son, and everyone misses it except for a group of Gentile magicians. I love it. (laughs) I love it. He is not a tame lion. The response of the Jewish king to the news of the Messiah is to try and do away with the threat. The response of the religious leaders is distracted in difference. The response of a group of pagan sorcerers from a distant land, however, is worship. They made a tremendous sacrifice to come and see the true king. They gave up two years of their life to make the journey. And then verse 10 tells us, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They jumped up and down and gave each other high fives. Verse 11 goes on to tell us, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So get this, picture it in your mind, powerful, wealthy, influential, educated dignitaries from Persia wearing the finest robes in the world fell on their faces on the dirt floor of a shack. And these men proceeded to worship a toddler. They then presented this little boy with extravagant gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It is doubtful that they would have understood the full significance of these gifts at the moment, but in retrospect, we do. William Barclay, in his commentary on Matthew, has this to say, Jesus came into the world to live for men and in the end to die for men. He came to give for men his life and his death, gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one who is about to die. These were the gifts of the wise men. And even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior of men. A part of the reason that we give, give gifts at Christmas time is because of the gifts of the Magi. This morning, we'll take part in the Lord's Supper. You can take a look around the room and see these tables with bread and wine. And like the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, this meal is also a gift but it isn't a gift that we give. Rather, it's a gift that we receive from God. It's a gift of forgiveness, right? That all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven because of Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection. It's a gift of adoption into his family. That's what this meal symbolizes, is that you get to come to the family table of God with Jesus and eat this meal You don't have to worry about being abandoned. You've been adopted into his family. This meal of bread and wine is a gift 
that should remind us that God is no longer angry with us, but rather we have peace with God because of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this meal today is a gift for the children of God, for the people of God. It's a gift for those people who have come to the point of trusting in Christ alone as their Savior. If you haven't come to that point today, then I would simply ask you to sit back and observe the people of God as they receive a reminder of that gift that we have in Jesus. Listen now to the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the storytelling that you engage in. I thank you, Father, that um, the story that you wrote was one with um, unexpected twists and turns. And Father, I pray that this morning that we would be moved by the picture of these wise men, these pagan uh, dignitaries, uh, spending two years of their life making their way to Bethlehem in order that they might worship your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be moved um, as we see them rejoicing at the star over the home. Father, I pray that we would be moved as we see them falling on their faces in the dust of a shack to worship your son Jesus, to give him the honor that he deserves. Father, I pray that we would be moved as we see their gifts offered to your son Jesus. But Father, more than these gifts and more than these offerings, I pray that we would be moved this morning by the gift of your son, Jesus, who gave his life that we might be made right with you. And so, Father, I pray that as we take this bread and we tear it off and as we dip it into wine, that we would receive the gift of forgiveness and righteousness and adoption that you offer us as we trust in your son, Jesus, and his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray.